0: My name is Billy Waters and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, before we get into Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 through 18, let's pray. Jesus, we come before you on this Veterans Day weekend and we want to pray your blessing over uh, those that served in our armed forces. We want to pray your protection over them, Jesus. We thank you for them and we ask, Lord Jesus, that they will strive to keep peace, not only in our country, but peace around the world. Lord, we also want to pray that you will give us wisdom and insight to know how to come alongside, pray for, care, um, minister to those that serve this country. And so, Lord, we thank you for the, the men and women who do so. We want to pray your blessing over them. And also, Lord, for today, we ask that you will crack open our hearts. And anything that's keeping us from a deeper relationship with you, Christ, we pray that you will remove those things in the name of Jesus And we stand firm on the promise that you have given us in your word, that you will, if we cry out, bring forth streams of living water on the dry desert of our hearts. So Jesus, pour out, pour out rivers of revival and renewal by your spirit upon us this morning, we pray. May it be so, Jesus. We love you. We love you with all of our heart. Amen. Well, today we're going to be talking about complaining. First comment after the first service was somebody complaining about this sermon. Uh, <laughs> he was joking. But it's, it's hard to live in the culture in which we live because we're just bombarded by complaining. Uh, we see it in the advertisements. In fact, that's how they'll say you need to buy this product because this product is better than this product, than that product, because this product doesn't do the same things as that other product, so this is a better deal. So you, you want to buy that thing because it's, it's, it's better than the thing that it's competing against. The same thing in politics. Um, there's a lot of complaining going on. You ask the question, why does advertisers and why do politicians continue to complain about the other person or the other product? Because it works. We live in a culture that is bombarded by complaining. And if we're not careful, that will seep its way into the church. It will. Um, Kaufman says that there's four basic kinds of uh, complainers. Uh, the first is the whiner, they, they just wake up whining. <laughs> they go to bed whining, and they may say something like, it's not fair, why me? Everyone else is getting a break but me. And the thing is, is that when we whine and complain, it doesn't make the situation any better, it just oftentimes makes it worse. Second is a martyr, uh, that's the victim. And they may some, say something like, no one appreciates me, my life is hard. I can't because of the the cards that have been dealt me. And as a result, I can kind of shift responsibility from me to someone else because I'm playing the victim. I can't change my circumstance or situation. That's the second kind. The third kind is the cynic. And by the way, there, there is no elbowing during this. There is no poking the person next to you. Can't do that during this sermon. Other sermons, yes, not this one. Third is the cynic. They say something like, just nothing ever changes. It's just the way things are. They may say it's no use. Why even bother? Bah humbug. Blah, 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 blah. They're the cynic. Number four, the perfectionist. Is that the best you can do? (laughs) Is that all you can do? You know, there's nothing that destroys the warmth of a relationship than complaining. There's nothing that destroys something in the home, the warmth of a relationship within the home, than complaining. And this is significant because we have just come off a section of scripture called the Christ hymn. It is the apex, it is the climax of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And in this passage, as we talked about last week, Paul is addressing Christian unity. The basis of Christian unity is that we've been united to Christ. Our response in Christian unity is others-centered love. But the third thing, the key to it all is humility, and that's where he gives the Christ hymn. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And then he goes into this passage about complaining. Why? Because there will be nothing that undermines our relationship and our trust with Jesus and our fervent love for one another than an attitude and an atmosphere of complaining. There will will be nothing that undermines the integrity of community, of church unity, than complaining. And so we need to talk about it. And this is what Paul addresses in Philippians chapter 2. First, we need to look at when is it most tempting to complain? When are we most challenged to complain? And that answer is found in verse 12. Notice, Paul says, Therefore, dear friends, that's a term of affection, as you have always obeyed, key, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Question, What was Paul being obedient to that brought his presence to the church in Philippi, planted the church in Philippi? If you remember back in Acts chapter 16, I mean, Paul gets this vision, he hears from the Lord, and he wants to go to Asia, but the Holy Spirit says, "Uh -uh." uh-uh. Then he wants to go to Bithynia, and the Lord says, no. And then he receives this Macedonian vision, this vision by the Lord to go to this place called Philippi in this region, Macedonia. And it's out of obedience that he goes there. And as soon as he goes there, he preaches the gospel. People give their life to Christ. But immediately after people giving their life to Christ, he's arrested because of his obedience. He's beaten with rods because of his obedience. He's flogged because of obedience. And he's thrown into prison because of obedience. His his life in response to the the word of the Lord... isn't better, the circumstances of life are worse. Things don't get charmed for Paul, they get worse. You think, what is going on? And by the way, Paul says to the church in Philippi, not only are my circumstances getting worse worse as a result of following and being obedient to Jesus, but your circumstances will get worse. David preached on this. Chapter one, verse 29, he says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Obedience to God's will oftentimes doesn't make our circumstances better, but it makes them worse. Furthermore, out of obedience, Paul, who is their leader, Paul, who is their beloved pastor, is now being ripped away because it's out of obedience. How much more in his his presence, but now much more in his absence. He's being ripped away out of obedience. Why? Because he needs to fulfill the second mission, the missionary journey, and to go into Berea, to Athens, and to Corinth. He's being ripped away. Why? Because of obedience. And here's the principle. It is challenging not to complain when life's circumstances don't go our way. When we take the job because we really, really think that this is a good job for us, we find out six months later, this is not a good job for us. It's really challenging not to complain when circumstances don't go our way, but it's especially challenging to not complain when we make decisions because we really, really believe that God is calling us to go here, do that, marry him, marry her, be in a relationship with them when we feel like we're calling, f- fulfilling God's will, when we prayed and we fasted and we've walked faithfully and we believe that we are responding in obedience to God's will and things don't get easier, they get harder. In fact, there's stories in this room right now where you felt like you were being obedient to the Lord and you went into a relationship with that person and things didn't go great, they were awful, they were challenging, they were difficult, and you're asking the question in the midst of it, was God just turning a blind eye to me in this situation? I was obedient to God and things aren't better, they're more challenging and difficult. And it's in that moment, when we feel like we're being obedient and things don't go our way, that we give into complaining. That's one in that his most challenging, most tempting we're called to not complain. Okay, so if that's when it's most challenging not to complain, what is complaining? What is the nature of complaining? Uh, let's keep reading. And, b- and by the way, it's not a sin to complain, because you see throughout the psalms, uh, throughout the psalms, the psalmist continually offering his complaint. But notice who he's offering his complaint to? It's to God. The problem is when we offer a complaint about God, about others or about circumstances or situations. But the psalmist all the time is going to God with complaint. And that's the difference between faith and sin. The psalmist cries out, to, "Why, who, O oh, Lord? How long, O oh, Lord? Why me, O oh, Lord? Why so downcast, O oh, Lord?" The psalmist continues to plant his complaints into God. And when we, when we look at our circumstances and situations, and they're not going like the way that we want them to go, what do we do with those complaints? The, the instrument of faith says you take those things to God. In Psalm 64, it says, Hear me, my God, as I voice my complaint. Protect my life from the threat of the enemy. And it's with that, with that we begin to understand what Paul is doing in the rest of verse 12 and 13. Notice. He says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, when you look at that passage, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, what is he saying there? Is he saying you have to work for your salvation? Salvation can only be received. It is a gift. And while salvation can only be received, it can't be achieved. That doesn't mean that we don't work out what has been implanted in us by his strength, by his power. It's like a child. You know, when when an infant is born, they're born. I mean, they have all of the genetic code. And then what is their adulthood? They're just growing up into what's already been planted in them. So it is with the new birth. We've been born again because of what Christ has done. We have the genetic code of new life. And what does it mean to be a Christian but to continue to live into what has already been planted in us? And what Paul is saying here is, well, 1 Peter 2, 2 says, like newborn babies, Crave spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation. And there it is. So what does it mean to work out your salvation, especially when you go through difficult times? It means to take those difficult situations that you are walking through and you plant them into God. That's faith, working out his purposes and plans in you and through you. When you have difficult situations, we can go one of two directions. Either you can go into greater formation Or deformation. Challenging times will either bring you closer to God or make you more bitter and and walk away from God. And the difference between those two is what you do with the complaints that are being brought to you. Do you just complain about your particular situation or actually do you bring those to God? It's kind of like the pearl, you know, the the little piece of sand that gets into the clam. It gets worked around and then it eventually becomes a pearl. And that's what difficult situations, hardships in our life actually do for us. It draws us closer to the things of God. But complaining is just the opposite. That when challenging times come upon us, What do we do with them? We just complain about them. And we fail to see the sovereign rule and work of God over and in and through. And complaining is a declaration of our inability to see what God is doing. A mistrust in God's sovereign rule and reign in our lives. That's the definition of rebellion. So it's failing to see what God is doing overall, but it's also a declaration of mistrust in God's sovereign rule in our lives. That's what complaining is. I've used this illustration before, but it's very fitting. Jewish tradition says that the splitting of the Red Sea was the greatest miracle ever performed. And yet we have the Midrash that mentions two Israelites, Reuben and Shimon, who had a different experience. Apparently the bottom of the sea, though safe to walk on, was not completely dry, but a little muddy. Like a beach at low tide. Reuben stepped into it and curled his lip. What is this muck? Shimon scowled. There is mud all over the place. This is just like the slime pits of Egypt, replied Reuben. What's the difference? complained Shimon. Mud here, mud there, mud everywhere. It's all the same, mud. And so it went on for the two of them, grumbling all the way across the bottom of the sea. And because they never once looked up, they never saw or understood why on the distant shore everyone else was singing songs of praise. For Reuben and Shimon, the miracle never happened because they were so focused on the minor distractions and complaining in the moment, they missed the drama of deliverance. Are you missing in the midst of your hardship the drama of deliverance? I'm not denying the reality of a difficult situation in your life. But we need to scale up and see the bigger picture and declare what God is doing throughout human history and even in our own lives. He is at work and what Paul will say is, is these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. Yes, these things are significant, but they, they pale in comparison to the glory that's going to be revealed to us in Christ Jesus. So get a different perspective. But complaining fails to see that perspective, and it only sees the mud pits that we're walking through, the minor distractions in this life. And so therefore, we fail to see the great promises that God is playing out in human history. Okay, so that's what complaining is. Fundamentally, it's a distrust in God's plans and puts a focus on me instead of who God is. Okay, now, what is the power of complaining? The power of complaining is twofold. If you see in verse 12, it says, therefore, my dear friends. So it's a transition. The reason why he says therefore is he said, you know, right before, this is what Christian unity is all about. It's based on union with Christ, other-centered love, and the key is humility to it all. And then he says, therefore, Therefore, in other words, if we engage in complaining, it will unravel the very integrity of community, and that's the power of complaining. It disravels and undermines the integrity of what it means to have other-centered love. Will Bowen, uh, in his book on complaining, he mentions um, five ways that we uh, complain, and it's an acronym, and it spells gripe. Okay. So why do we complain? Here's five ways or reasons that we complain. First, the G, get attention. It's opposite of selfish ambition or, vain, or it's selfish ambition or vain conceit. The focus is on us, not other-centered love. There's an innate desire to be noticed, to be heard, to be recognized. And so maybe the question that we can ask when somebody is doing that is, what is going well with you? What attributes do you respect about the other person? And by the way, when somebody's complaining to you, this is a great thing that you can do. When they're talking to you about somebody else, just say, it sounds like what that person did really frustrated to you. So why don't you get me out of the triangle? Go to that person directly. Tell them, this is what I observed about the situation. This is how it affected me. What do you think? Get me out of the triangle and go to that person directly. First is get attention. The second, though, is to remove responsibility. Again, to play the victim card. Because when I complain about the traffic, about the government, about my workload, it removes responsibility from me and puts it on somebody else. A great question when somebody's trying to complain in order to remove responsibility is, if it was possible, how might you do it? If if there's another way possible, how might you do it? So again, it puts the responsibility back on them. Third, inspire envy. That's why we complain another way to brag. I'm good because you're bad, you know. My teacher, they just don't get it, but I do. <laughs> when I was doing uh, renovations in our house, you know, tear out the sheetrock, you'd see the plumbing or you'd see the electrical and the way they did it. You know, it was just so tempting to say, I had never seen this before. How could they do such a thing? In other words, they were so stupid, but I am so smart. If you just see the way I do it, then it'll inspire envy. That's the third reason. Number four, power. Power of authority and privilege. And again, it's what the advertisers do, and it's also what the politicians do. Continue to do, to garner power, to garner the vote. We ask the question, why do they continue? Because it works. That's why they continue to do it. Lastly, excuse poor performance. I've never golfed, but maybe I've heard, I don't know, maybe you've heard, I need to get a new grip because the ball isn't going where I want it to go. So therefore, it's the grip's fault. It's not my swing's fault. It's not my, it's not my ability's fault. It's the grip's fault. Stupid club. <laughs> you didn't wake me up at time. It didn't, it didn't go well because of what the teacher did. It didn't go well because of what the boss did. Excuses poor performance. So maybe these are some reasons why we complain, but this is what James says about when we complain. Don't grubble against one another on Instagram or Facebook, (laughs) brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. The words we have have power, power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. James says that our, our tongue is like it's just a little spark. It's like a little thing, but it has the ability to set a forest fire. When you have a forest fire, it completely destroys life. And then it charges the topsoil in such a way that water can't get through. And then that topsoil gets washed down into the rivers, creating toxicity within the water and killing the fish. And the forest won't come back for 10, 20, 30 years. The power of a forest fire. And how does it get started? With a little spark. So it is with our words when we complain. Words have the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. So the power of complaining is that undermines community, and it's so significant because in Titus he says, listen, warn a divisive person once. Warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. That's the power of complaining. But secondly, complaining keeps us back from the promised land. Notice in verse 15, do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault and a warped and a crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. If you see that there's quotes, children of God without fault and a warped and a crooked generation, that's hearkening back to Deuteronomy. It's a direct quote, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, speaking of the promised land. The reason why the people of God did not enter into the promised land after they had been delivered from Egypt is because of complaining. Because complaining was equated to rebellion. And it took them 40 years. It should have taken them two weeks. And every time they complained, it was like another lap. Complain, another lap. 40 years later, an entire generation died away. Why didn't they enter into the promised land? Because of complaining. They never entered in. Numbers 14 How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who is counted in the census, who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with an uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb and Joshua." That is an Old Testament principle, but it's also a New Testament principle. We will not enter into the promised land of heaven with grumbling. Now, someone may say, and rightfully so, don't, doesn't salvation come by grace through faith? Absolutely. But grumbling is a sign of a lack of faith. Grumbling is a sign of unbelief. And we know that to be true because that's what Hebrews says, Hebrews 3 who were, they who, heard the, um, who were they that heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter. Why? Because of their unbelief. Grumbling unbelief. They never entered in. Now that's the power of complaining. But notice the power of not complaining. Okay, transition, happy things. Okay, this is the good news. This is where the turn is. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault and warped and a crooked generation, that you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life or hold out the word of life. Question, what will allow us to be a gospel witness in a culture and a society that is riddled and bombarded with complaining? What will allow us as a church to shine brightly for the things of Jesus in our community? Notice what the scriptures don't say. It doesn't say, if you just have a number one rated podcast, shine like stars. It doesn't say, if you get a, if someone on your staff does a number one rated New York Times best-selling book, shine like stars. Your band puts out an album. It wins all sorts of Dove Awards. You know, shine like stars. Best programs, big church, shine like stars. It doesn't say any of that. What does it mean for a church to shine like stars? It means that we do not grumble. If we do not grumble, we do not complain, especially in the midst of hardships, we will shine like stars in the universe. We will declare something of the gospel to a lost and a broken world that even as we go through difficult times, we're declaring the sovereign rule and reign of King Jesus when we don't complain. When we don't complain. That's the power of it. Now, lastly, how do we not complain? How can we not complain? Verse 17 and 18. But even now, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. Like a drink offering on a sacrifice and service coming from your faith. I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, a drink offering was literally like a cup or a a bowl of wine or oil. that was poured out on the offering. As the offering was lit on fire, it was like a sweet aroma to the Lord. And what Paul is referring to here is his death. It comes up again in 2 Timothy. He says of himself, his body, he's being poured out like a drink offering. But he's also saying, I'm sharing this with you. It's for you, and it's with you. Not only the suffering, but also the rejoicing. That partnership in the gospel means a partnership in his suffering and a partnership in his glory. But notice what brings it all together. In other words, he's not denying the light and momentary troubles, but what he's calling them to do is to lift up their heads to the glorious promises of the hope that we have as the children of light. That's what he's calling us to. But notice how he ends in verses 18. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. That is a worship word. And that's how we as a community... Don't grumble. Don't walk in complaining as a community. We worship. I read three books this week on complaining. Well, skimmed three books (laughs) on complaining. And not one mentioned worship. It was always take the 21-day challenge of not complaining. Take this challenge of not complaining. But what the scriptures say is, don't focus on not complaining. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Because the extent that we do that, our eyes will be lifted up, not focused on the circumstances and the mud pits, but on the great deliverance that God has secured for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Worship is the key. It puts everything else in perspective. If here's a person who is downtrodden, they're going through difficult times in life, you know, their car is breaking down, they can't pay rent because they live in Denver, Um, they're having a hard time getting their kid through college, it's just a struggle it's a struggle. They're going through a hard time. And so they begin to sell their jewelry or different things around their house. They go to the jeweler and you, you give a little gem to the jeweler and it, let's just say the jewelry jeweler um, takes out his little eye thingy, looks at the jewel, is shocked, begins to sweat a little bit, eyes pop out, goes to the back, gets a little bigger eye thingy, looks at the jewel, goes back, looks through all of his books, looks up on the internet and realizes that what you have before you is a rare and priceless piece of jewelry that dates back to the Ming dynasty. So all of a sudden, it's worth billions and billions and trillions of dollars. Now, does that devalue or diminish or take away the troubles and the difficulties that this person is going through? Absolutely not. But it pales in comparison to the glory and the value of what we really have in Christ Jesus. So lift our eyes in worship. And this is why the scriptures continue to call us to go back to the cross. Because when we're tempted to complain and argue and just say, it's not fair, it's not fair. When we look at the cross, the cross does two things. The cross first tells us, you're right, it's not fair. You don't deserve those things. In fact, you deserve a lot worse. You deserve eternity in hell. That's what the cross tells us. It's not fair. You deserve, I deserve far worse. But this is what the cross also tells us. That we are far more loved than we could ever ask or imagine. That God loved us so much that he sent his one only son to die on the cross for us. So you're right. You go through times in life, it's not fair. Look to the cross, worship him. And all of a sudden, it's not that we don't see these things that we're going through in life that are challenging and difficult. We just don't focus on them. We worship King Jesus. And we're led to a place not of complaining, but of gratitude. And then we can say with Jonathan Edwards, because of what Christ has done, the bad things will turn out for good. The good things will never be taken away. And the best is yet to come.